Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I'm Evan. And I'm Aaron. And this is a podcast where we read the Bible together every year and talk about what we learned along the way. If you'd like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and look up the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington. You can find our plan there. And we also have the plan available on our website, grove.church. And if you're jumping in today, you can start on day 36 of our plan. Welcome to the podcast if that's you today. Uh, One of the other things to be aware of before we jump into this week's study is that we love to take time as much as we can week over week to answer questions. I say as much as we can because uh, in the anomaly like last week, uh, we didn't answer questions. uh, Super mega long episode, mega episode, if you will. Uh, But we love to take time to answer those questions. So we just ask you to send us those questions. There's three ways that you can do that. One is via the old school way of email. Uh, The email address is info at grove.church. Make sure to put in a subject line for that, a podcast question. Or you can DM us on social media. That's direct message, uh, either via Facebook. We are the Grove Church in Washington, as Evan already said. Or you can message us on Instagram. Our, our Instagram handle is the Grove CH. Uh, and so you're welcome to send us questions on any of those three platforms or avenues, uh, and we will get them and take time as much as we can. So looking forward to those questions. Well, this week we are continuing the book of Exodus. Yes, we are. All Exodus. All the time. That's what this podcast is. So. A little bit of narrative, a little bit of law. Uh, it's it's a little bit of everything is what it feels like. And Aaron gets most of the narrative this week. And then if you want if you want the rules, I'll talk a little bit later about those. But Aaron, what let's pick up where we left off. Chapter thirteen is where we picked off. Or picked off. Picked we will pick up. We picked off we chapter off. thirteen. Yes. We it's, left off in chapter done. twelve. Uh, and then we hit chapter thirteen here. Uh, And just a quick recap, if you're jumping in for the first time, at this point in Exodus, uh, the Israelites have been released by Pharaoh. Uh, The plagues have already happened. The death of the firstborn has already happened. Uh, And Pharaoh says, take your people and get out of here. God uh, tells them to ask their neighbors for gold and silver. They do that. So we pick up in chapter 13 where they've been set free. And then Moses is wrapping up his, his explanation of the Passover. Uh, He's giving them the instructions as far as what the Passover was meant to be. Passover, if you don't know this, uh, refers to the final plague in Egypt where God uh, sent uh, the death angel, I guess you can say, uh, throughout Israel and Goshen, and which is where the Israelites were staying was in Goshen. And uh, God told his people through Moses and Aaron uh, to kill a lamb, to have a meal, be dressed to be ready. You can go back and read in chapter 12 all about it. They put blood over the door frames. And when the angel of the Lord came through to kill the firstborn of, of as punishment for hardness of heart and rebellion from Pharaoh, um, then he would pass over those, those homes with the blood of the land that marked their door frames. Uh, so that's what Passover is intended to be. So this becomes the, a new uh, festival or feast uh, that the Israelite people are going to observe on a yearly basis. Uh, so he finishes up the instructions about this. He talks about dedicating the firstborn son and the male uh, and, he, and the firstborn of the livestock as well. Uh, and this is important because the firstborn is oftentimes uh, was the one that had more favor uh, because they were a sign of strength for the father uh, and the livestock. It was a sign of strength and wealth. Uh, and so when God says you're to dedicate the firstborn of your sons uh, and the firstborn of your livestock, he in essence is saying, hey, you're going to give them to me uh, because God is then going to, he in essence takes the the seat of protection and provision uh, where whenever a son was born, especially the firstborn, you knew that your line would carry on. So God was in essence saying, give me your firstborn, your best version, the one that you would give a double portion to and give him to me. And then I will then 
continue to provide and protect you. This made me uh, just think about uh, beloved listener, Tim of the podcast. We were emailing back and forth Hi, this week and he, uh, he brought, it wasn't a question, but he brought up, cause remember a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about how interesting it is that the firstborn thing doesn't really apply to so many of the, uh, in the Abrahamic line, because Isaac isn't the firstborn, it's Ishmael, Jacob isn't the firstborn, and then Judah, True. who is kind of the preeminent son of the sons of Jacob. Uh, he pointed out Moses also isn't the firstborn. Nope. It is Aaron. And then Moses' father is also not the firstborn. So it, it kind of just, all this talk of firstborn, it doesn't really have anything to do with what you just said, but it just made me think of yeah. that whole that whole interesting thing that we stumbled well, upon. Well, but we see, in, so and in, in God is speaking more to the influence of the culture. You put a lot of stake, the ancient Israel, ancient cultures put a lot of stake in their firstborn um, and they put a lot of weight um, and it was a, a representation of like strength and provision and the line will continue. Uh, and so God isn't saying, give that to me because I'm now your inheritance. Like I'm now the one who's going to provide and protect mm-hmm. you. Uh, so we see this firstborn moment uh, as part of the final Passover piece. Um, and then it, it covers chapter 13, covers the route out of Egypt uh, to the to Mount Sinai, and this is the journey they're at. Um, we see in chapter fourteen, um, and this is I think really when I, I remember reading it this the, a couple you know this past couple weeks, and it kind of just struck me like God was telling Moses and the Israelites, "Hey, this is going to happen." Um, so when they're standing before the Red Sea, it was just one of those freak out moments from the Israelites. But it says this: I'm going to read chapter fourteen one through four, and then skip to thirteen and fourteen. Um, but in essence, God's telling Moses, the Egyptians are going to change their mind again. Pharaoh's going to change his mind again. He already let you go. He already let you plunder them. He already took, like, he freed you, but he's changing his mind, which is not abnormal. This is what Pharaoh did all throughout uh, the history of Moses. It says this in chapter 14, verse 1 through 4. It says, and the Lord spoke to Moses. Again, this is after they were there in the wilderness at this point. Tell the Israelites to turn back in front of Piharoth between Migdal and the sea. You must camp in front of Baal Zephon facing it by facing it by the sea. Pharaoh will say to the Israelites, they are wandering around the land in confusion. The wilderness has boxed them in. So in essence, God's people have moved forward and they can see, they have scouts, whatever they can see, and they've turned back. And so it almost seems like, oh, they're confused. And then he says this in verse four, this is God speaking to Moses. I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. Then I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh and all of his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. So the Israelites did great. They listened. They went back. They camped. Uh, and then Pharaoh shows up. And so then we see verse 13 and 14 follows up where you see this fulfillment. You see actually it happening. You see, uh, I said this, but Moses said to the people after they had done this, don't be afraid, stand firm and see the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you must be quiet. You fast forward into chapter 14. And you and we all know the story, right? Moses and the Israelites part of the walked across the Red Sea on dry ground. Uh, this supernatural, incredible miracle. Uh, but God was already providing for them and giving them clarity. Yet they still freaked out. We have instances if you and when you read in chapter fourteen, you'll see that they like, what are we supposed to do, Moses? Um, and you see this freak out to a degree. But Moses had already been communicated from God what was coming, and then he communicated that onward to the people, and they still forgot and neglected that. Well, we we've talked about this a lot over the history of our of our podcast. I, I'm a big believer in we it's wrong to look at the Israelites and be like, man, true. I would have done better than that. You know what I mean? Um in this particular instance, I just it's so crazy to me because you're right. Like God does straight up say, hey, do this. That's gonna make Pharaoh come. 
but don't worry, I got it. It's going to be awesome. I'm going to so, deliver you. Like, and I think like, you know, I, I, there, I joked uh, in a message a long time ago about how the VeggieTales Jonah movie kind of ruined my perception of Jonah, where I, like it gave me some wrong ideas about the story. I think Prince of Egypt, <laughs> it's a great movie, but it gives us a lot of wrong ideas about the story itself. Because in that, in the movie, the Israelites are, they're just hanging out by yeah. the Red Sea, you know, for no reason. They're just chilling there. And then the Egyptians come like, oh my gosh, Moses, look. Like that's kind of the way it goes down. But you realize like God told them the plan and they still like completely flip out about this. And this it's not like, you know, when Moses first comes to Egypt, I get it. I yeah. get like being a little like God hasn't been, he hasn't really said anything for a few centuries now. Um, and now you're coming in and saying like, hey, like this is, this is Yahweh. You forgot his name. He is our God, the God of our fathers, uh, and he's going to set us free. I get being a little skeptical there. Once you've seen the 10 plagues, yeah, it, right? feel, it feels it feels to me like maybe you would be like, yeah, yeah, God's got this. He, he probably knows what he's talking about. So, But again, like, who knows? I, I, maybe I, I, I shouldn't say well, maybe. I, I probably would have been one of the Israelites who was flipping Totally. I, I think all of us would have, right? I think even Moses had his moments of freaking out and like, God, why did you bring me out here? Why did you give me these people? True. Like, and we see that throughout even the, even what we're reading this week. Um, but I do think there's a nuance here where you see this war of cultures. You see the culture that Israel, Israel grew up with, within the Egyptian culture with the multiple gods and Pharaoh's the di- divinity. But I agree with you. Like this idea of like, where we've been delivered, God has shown up in full force and done things not even Pharaoh's best magicians could do and then delivered the people on top of that, then plundered Egypt. And it's all of a sudden like, hey, don't worry. These guys are going to come. They're going to come after us. But guess what? You're not going to see them after this. Like, And so it's, it is this interesting moment where like, it's, it's short-sightedness. Like they just miss what God is saying to them. Uh, and so we see in continued in chapter 14, you see this, they escape through the Red Sea, which this in and of itself is a, is a miraculous, like supernatural, powerful thing. And beyond this, remember... They had a cloud of fire, or a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud right. directing them. So it wasn't even like God has, has removed himself and he's not visible. You have these two powerful manifestations of God's glory and might directing and leading God's people. And so it even it only reinforces more so like, hold up, like, why are you freaking out about God not having this or taking care of this? At the Red Sea because of of that. So. Well, it's kind of like yeah, it's it's so funny to me that, and I guess spoilers for what's going to come up here in a little bit, but it's like you you literally see the Red Sea part, yeah, and you walk across it on dry, on dry land, land, and then you after everyone's gone, it drowns the Egyptians, and then a few a little bit later, you're like, man, God can't give us food in the desert. We're all going to start. It kind of reminds me of like one of my favorite um, just thought experiments, I guess, is like Noah's Ark. And how like a lot of people get hung up on like, well, how could Noah's Ark have even happened? How could you populate the like, which is like, okay, you know, fair. That's, that's a fair thing to wonder. Um, but like once you've accepted the, pre- like the, the only premise that matters in all of those discussions is, is, is there a God? Is God real? Yeah. And like once you've accepted the idea that there is an omnipotent like uh, or an all-powerful, all-knowing God who created the world out of nothing – Nothing in the Bible is hard to believe. <laughs> like, sure. it's like, how's, no, how's Noah's Ark happened? I was like, I don't know. Probably the all-powerful, all-knowing God creator of the universe probably- he spoke everything in existence. He, he probably made it happen. Like, like yeah. you know what I mean? Like, all of the miracles, all of a sudden, it's like, you don't have to try and figure out the exact, like, details of how, like, it actually yeah. works in the physical world. It's like, like, once there's a God, there's a God. Like, once God has delivered you, 
like through the plagues and through the Red Sea. Like how on earth is anything going to be like, well, okay, I know God did this, but all of a sudden, like how are we going to eat right now, Moses? I wish we were slaves again. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Not to steal your thunder. No, no, you're good. It's totally true though. Like that's the tension. And, and I do think this, like there is, like there is a glimmer of like, man, that's a powerful statement. Um, so Israel comes through chapter 14 continues. Israel comes through the Red Sea. And and just a quick side note, like when it says that they passed through the Red Sea on dry ground, that in and of itself, like I was thinking about this this morning, like that in and of itself is even pretty remarkable because not only is the is the water parted it's not so mud. they can walk through, it's not mud. It's right. not it's not like feet of mud, it's dry ground. They walked across. Anyways, all that to say, they walk across dry ground, they observe and watch the wall, the walls of water collapse over Pharaoh's army killing the, the Egyptians, all of their army, not all of their army, the majority of the Egyptians like killed them. And and then this is where I think verse 40, 31 in, in chapter 14 is so powerful. It says this, when Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in him and his servant Moses. And I would add a caveat for the moment. Yeah, for, for now. <laughs> uh, but still, I think that's a powerful moment where it's all, all of a sudden like it's just something clicked. Like, oh, that's right. Because remember... They didn't experience the plagues. They observed them happening. They never they never were touched. They were in Goshen. True, yeah. The plagues never impacted them. It only impacted the Egyptians. And so they didn't have this incredible full-on encounter beyond the pillar of cloud and pillar of fire. All that to say, chapter 14 ends with their their crossing and being freed, crossing the Red Sea, God's conquering of Egypt of Egypt, and then their response and recognition of God's power. Chapter 15, then it's where the Israelites break out in song. Uh, they sing songs now in ancient times, songs that are away. And you see this Lord of the Ring, Link, Rings reference for you, bro. Uh, but you see the songs being sung after a victory or after deliverance or after provision. I think of um, Aragorn's song. I think of uh, of, of uh, Mary's song, right? It's Mary. Oh, Pippin. Pippin. I, don't, I get those two confused all oh, the time, bro. Well, I mean, yeah, they're the two easiest characters to confuse. But sure. I, but I, so you see these songs of reflection and remember, and that's what's happening here is not necessarily the same thing, but they're taking time to reflect. And it, the song that they're singing recounts and reflects on all that God did in provision and providing and delivering them. Um, and then they, then they continue wandering. They come to this place of Mara. Which after grumbling, of course, there's this incredible miracle where they're thirsty. It says that they were wandering for three days, which is interesting. And they started grumbling. So three days, they went three days fearing the Lord and believing in him. And then they started grumbling. Uh, And God goes to Moses or Moses goes to God and says, God, what I'm supposed to do? These people, they're thirsty. He sees a tree, throws it in the water, and then the water becomes able to drink. And so that's this incredible miracle at Mara that happens. Uh, you see chapter 16, which is the miracle of manna and quail uh, that's provided after the grumbling again, of course. Um, and they just, they complained. We ate all the meat we wanted back in Egypt. Why'd you bring us out here to die? And, and so God goes to Moses. Moses goes to God. God comes back to Moses and says, okay, I'm going to provide quail. I'm going to give them meat to eat. And and then he they, he brings quail, just shows up, falls out of the ground or out of the sky. They uh collect all the quail they collect manna in the morning which is bread or not they don't not manna but that is but the bread they collect the the flaky flour type stuff to make bread uh and they and they enjoy this and i thought this was interesting they ate the manna for 40 years until they came to the promised land (laughs) you're gonna you better like it uh okay sorry to to, something just occurred to me in chapter 15 so this is very open-handed i could get an email that's like hey you're an idiot you're wrong so then it'll probably come from me no just kidding what's interesting is so the 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 water is bitter and they throw a tree 
into the water to mm-hmm. be able to make it uh, to make it drinkable to drink. But what do they name the place? They name it Mara, which means bitter. Yep. And so it is kind of interesting to me that like what what are and the, so again this is the part that's really open handed. It feels like to me in that moment, what are the Israelites focusing on? They're focusing on the fact that the water was bitter, or that and that's how they're remembering the place. It kind of just shows the attitude. Um, the attitude of the people going in that moment. But again, like this could be, this is just kind of conjecture. It just stuck, it stuck out to me that the name that the Israelites chose for the place was to focus on the bitterness of the water before the miracle of actually making it easy to drink. So I don't know, who knows? That was just a quick little, quick little So I wonder, I was looking this up too, so I'm glad you drew it out just enough so it looks like it's a good transition. So, um, but it says they came tomorrow, but they could not drink the water tomorrow because it was bitter. That is why it was named Mara. Now, I don't know if, if uh, God's people named it Mara, but they came to a place, Mara, it was, the water was bitter. That's what it was. Um, so whether they named it or not, I don't know. Well, but the, Mara is the Hebrew word though. So I would think that's what they name it. But I, again, th- like I said, this is all completely open-handed. It could have just been, maybe it was named bitter in another language and it's recorded in Hebrew as, as Mara. And that's what the name of the place always was. In which case, forget I said anything, listeners. But still, at the end of the day, like they came to the place, they knew it was going to be bitter whether or whether or not they knew it was bitter, it was bitter, right? Right. So if they knew it, they knew it. If not, then they had an incredible moment. Um, but it says three days they were thirsty. So that's where the tree, like, and it wasn't even like, I'm like, is it a whole tree? Is it a branch of a tree? Is it a piece of a tree? Like what? Is, but no, it says they threw a tree in the water and it became drinkable. Well, and that's what Bridger filters use today. Yeah, it's, it's trees. Just, if you crack them open, it's just trees. In yeah, there. be careful cracking it open because you might have leaves and stuff pop out too. So just be careful. About no it. boy, no. Uh, chapter 16, like I said, they had man and quell. Chapter 17, the people are thirsty again. Uh, and they, it says that they camp at Refidim. Now this, they're going to be at Refidim for a while. Um for the next several chapters and also for a while because this is right before they go to Mount Sinai, uh, which is the mountain of God. Uh, but the people are thirsty again. Go figure. They've been wandering the wilderness and there's no water source at Rephidim. Uh, so they grumbled again. Shocker is what I put in my notes in parentheses. Shocker. Um, so Moses goes to God and is frustrated at these people again. God tells Moses to go ahead uh, with some elders to strike a rock at Horeb. Um, and I say... I say I do think, and I put this in my notes as well, like remember this moment because this this, this experience is going to come back to haunt Moses later. Um, and not necessarily the same experience, but what God did in this moment will haunt him later. And some of you already know what I'm alluding to, but we're not reading that this week, so I'm not even going to touch it. Uh, but just remember this moment. They So God goes, for, or Moses goes forward with some elders. He sees a rock and he strikes it with the staff and water gushes out of the rock. Now I'm going to stop for a second because that that's ridiculous. Like, I'm in the wilderness. There's no water source whatsoever. And God's going to say, hey, Moses, go strike a rock. Now, Moses was the right, did the right thing. He was obedient because he saw everything God did. So he had this understanding. He was he he was called a friend with God. He talked with God. He convinced God to turn away his wrath uh, later on. Yeah, from, we'll, we'll talk about judgment, that. <laughs> right? He, so there's this close relationship. So Moses knew and could trust God. Um, so water gushes out of the rock and the people get to drink water. Uh, and so then that's an incredible moment in and of itself. Then we see chapter 17 also that this guy named Amalek, this kingdom of Amalek shows up on the scene. And this becomes the first real fight that Israel faces. They've been fighting against themselves. They've been quarreling against Moses. They've been grumbling because they've been hangry a lot. Um, and I'm sorry, I, I understand. I can empathize to a degree because I get hangry and and I'm close to water and I'm close to food and I still get hangry. I can't imagine wandering and what it would do. Headaches dehydration, all of these different things that's going to impact, right? So I get it. Um, but this is the first real like physical altercation that God's people are up against. 
Um, and and I, I read something in my study notes um, of my new CSB study Bible that I have. Um, it's that, nice. That alluded to Deuteronomy um, and talked about how Amalek was kind of a, a, an annoyance to the Israelite people during this time, that he was kind of picking off the weaker of the Israelite people. He would kind of take advantage of the weaker the weaker people. And so Moses sends Josh, sends Joshua, say, go grab some men and go fight Amalek. Tomorrow morning, he, he goes up to mountain, up to a hilltop to observe and oversee the battle. And this is where we get the incredible story where as Moses is watching the battle of the Amalekites, I think there's a song that goes with it, but I don't know it. Um, his, as his hands were raised, the Israelite people were winning the battle. When his arms got tired and he started lowering his hands, uh, then all of a sudden Amalek and his his uh, fighters started winning the battle. So then you get the name Aaron, which is obviously his older brother, and her, who we don't know a ton about, uh, but we do know that he's a very favorable uh, and, and and a very high class character. And his son's a good carpenter. How do we know that? Oh, we'll come to that. we'll come to that later. Oh, good. Because next I, section. Apparently, I missed that when I was reading through it. Um, so all that to say, you see these two characters, Aaron and her, hold Moses' hands up, find, helps accomplish victory. Um, and this is where we get one of the names of God, which, which is Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is my banner. And it's not just like a, a banner that you would put out on the side of a building, but this is a banner with which they identify as a people and live in submission to. Um, it's uh, it's something that would mark them whenever they had this banner or this, this, so to speak, it would be, this is who we not fight for, but who we, who, who we are, we're God's people. Uh, so that's where we get one of the word Moses calls Jehovah, Jehovah Nisi. So Lord is my banner. That's chapter 17. Then chapter 18, uh, we get Moses' father-in-law back on the scene. Uh, and remember the last time Moses really interacted with his father-in-law is after at the after the burning bush moment where God calls him to go to Egypt. He gets permission from Jethro to leave. Um, so Jethro shows back up in chapter 18, um, and he brings back with him, Jethro brings back with him Zipporah and Moses' sons. Now, what we don't n- know is we don't have a reason why or when Moses sends Zipporah and his sons back to Jethro. We don't have an account of why that happened, but it happened because obviously Jethro's bringing Zipporah back. Uh, so that was part of the journey. Um, and I kind of I, I kind of lead towards, as I, as I read through it a bit, and this is totally, again, open-handed conjecture. This is my speculation as I'm processing through these things. Um, but I kind of lead towards like Moses is sending them away at one point was more purposeful and protective because he knew or he he had a, a certain degree of what was going to happen, of what it was going to require of him. And part of it is he could have been a thorn in Pharaoh's flesh. Pharaoh could have held him hot or held his wife and son's hostage or whatever, had them killed just because he was a thorn in the flesh of Pharaoh. Either way to say, I kind of lean towards this idea of part of the reason why they were sent back to Jethro's protection um, and just be pers- purposeful in that. And this is why in, eight, in chapter 18, verse five to 10, it says this, Moses' Moses's father-in-law and Jethro, along with Moses' wives and sons came to him in the wilderness when he was camped at the mountain of God. He sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jeff, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. So Moses, and this is kind of one of the things, so Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down, then kissed him. They asked each other how they had been, how they had been, and went into the tent. Like this is a sign, a sign of, of respect. It's a sign of honor, and it's almost. A, I, I get in this moment like this vibe of, uh, of, I'm so happy to see you. Like I'm, I'm glad you're back. They went into the tent, um, and then says this in verse eight, which is kind of shifting thoughts a little bit. So I, all of that to say, when it comes to, I, I view Moses sending Zipporah and her sons away 
as a as a protective measure, as a purposeful measure to say, hey, go be with your father-in-law because what I'm about to do is going to be difficult and, 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 and hard and I don't want you to be impacted negatively by any of that. Well, the other, the other question too would be, um, how do Zipporah and Moses' sons view themselves? And it's very possible because they spent most of their lives in Midian. Like mm-hmm. the, we, oh, for sure. Um, and so being among the people of Israel, there also could have just been an aspect of like, these aren't my people. Like they're, they, they're Midianites. And it's kind of like, and almost in a similar way to uh, um, the way Moses must have felt a little bit, although, like we said, he knew that he was he was Hebrew um, the whole time that he was in Egypt. But Moses is kind of a man of three nations. <laughs> He's yeah. kind of Egyptian, Midian, and uh, and Israelite. Whereas with Zipporah and his sons, the adventure into Egypt and then coming out into the wilderness that is a very small blip in their lives. Most of their lives have yep. been as as shepherds in Midian, and so it's very possible too that they that that's where they wanted to be yeah. as well. So, and again, that's all conjecture. Yeah, absolutely. So, so we see that happening. Jethro shows back up. And then we see verse eight here in chapter 18. It says, Moses recounted to his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardships that had confronted them on the way and how the Lord rescued them. Jethro rejoiced over all the good things the Lord had done for Israel when he rescued them from the power of the Egyptian. Blessed be the Lord, Jethro exclaimed, who rescued you from the power of Egypt and from the power of Pharaoh. He has rescued the people from under the power of Egypt. So I just think it's a really cool moment with Moses interacting with his father-in-law. Um, he received the blessing from Jethro to leave, to, to bring deliverance to God's people. Uh, Jethro shows up. Um, and it's almost like a check-in too, I would imagine. It's because then we get further in, Je- in chapter 18, um, we we see the, the account where Jethro is observing Moses and how he's leading God's people. Now, remember, this is not like a group of 100 or 200. This is a massive amount of people. I think if I remember correctly, 600,000 able-bodied men were the ones that led forward. They were in battle ranks as they left Egypt. Um, so this is a massive country. Like it, it's not something small. And so Moses is sitting there judging everything from day until night. Um, now we don't have, I don't, I don't remember reading in scripture or in the account where it's every day this is happening, but it's happening right now and Jethro is observing it. And so this is where Jethro acts, uh, responds to, to Moses and gives some of those brilliant leadership advice um, that still today carries a lot of weight that I, I instill a lot of influence is this idea of like, don't you do this, raise up individuals, select people who to be governors of 50, 100, 1,000 and let them try the cases and anything that they can't handle then come to you. In essence, Jethro gives Moses the idea of, of, of a, a hierarchy of leadership, so to speak. Um, and that's what happens. And so Moses responds, does what Jethro suggests. He sends Jethro on his way. Um, now we don't have the account that Jethro takes Zipporah back with him. So at this point, the the assumption can be, I guess, that Zipporah is now with Moses. Um, and chapter 18 ends with Jethro go heading back home. Uh, then in chapter 19, we see it's been three months. I thought this was pretty interesting. It was three months to the day where they had left Egypt. They arrived at Sinai. Um, so what was a journey, um, three months later, they're out the mountain of God. Um, and this is where I, I say they spend the next 80 plus days because there's two different instances where Moses has gone for 40 days um, up on the mountain talking with God. Um, but so we see this slowdown that happens in the story. So in Zipporah and Moses' sons go with him to Egypt, correct? I didn't. Yes. Okay. Because so, we have the foreskin incident. Right. Right. So there's that moment. So I imagine when they get there or they get close to where Aaron is, like there's a moment of 
time to go. So even with, yeah, even with like all of the protection talk and the, uh, did they feel more at home in Midian? The three months actually puts into perspective, like that very much could have just been a trip home and like just see everyone and then come back. Yeah, like it's if, true. If you're talking about, because you think it's about um, three months a day from when they left Egypt. So once they get through the Red Sea, I don't know the exact dates on that, but it's very possible they just took a month, went back to Midian, hung out for a bit, and then came back, and we're all just making much ado about well, nothing in that moment. And so there's, for me, the conjecture is, I, I wonder if before the plagues and all that stuff happened, Zipporah sent home. Oh, maybe. Because it, it was one of those things, like, it's not the wilderness journey to me, it's what, it's the, I'm going to be a thorn in his flesh. And Pharaoh very well could have taken hostage or taken captive Zipporah and her sons as a as leverage against Moses to get Moses to stop to yield whatever like there's so many different like things that we could totally speculate about mm-hmm. um, but my 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 initial thinking in in the most recent reading of this is I would I would peg it to be somewhere around that ballpark after Moses and Aaron meet set up the precedent talk to the elders meet with the Israelites that's before the plague start I would I would envision or imagine that's when Zipporah would leave but again, this is all speculation. So, um, so we have this three months after the day that they left Egypt, they arrive at Sinai. The next eighty plus days they'll spend here, uh, and we see a slowdown for a little bit in the story. Moses meets with God on Mount Sinai. He prepares. He was told to prepare the people to come to the base of the mountain, and then God shows up in full power. Uh, and it's a terrifying. It's a terrifying to imagine this instance, um, which I think is really important and probably a great way to stop before we take a break in the podcast and then finish up this week's episode. Um, but in, in ver- chapter 19, verse 16 to 20, it says, on the third day when morning came, there was thunder and lightning, a thick cloud on the mountain. Now, I have these allusions back to Job and Elihu's speech. That's and a good time. Like that. Um, so there's this thick cloud on the mountain, a very loud trumpet sound, so all the people in the camp shuddered. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord came down on it in fire. Its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain shook violently. Now, I'll stop here for a second because remember, God's people had experienced this pillar of cloud and this pillar of fire on their exodus from Egypt. They had experienced that, but they have never experienced this. This is really the first moment where they experience face-to-face, God's power and might on display, consuming this mountain, and then shaking violently. Dude, those are those are terrifying things. Um, and it says Mount Sinai, verse 18, was completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord came down on it. Oh, I think I already read that. Sorry. And the mountain shook violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. So it's not only just this visual and this physical-like shaking that they're experiencing, but then this trumpet sound that's growing louder and louder and louder. And then Moses spoke and God answered him in the thunder. So it's just in, like... I don't even know what I would do, bro. <laughs> like, it's pretty intense. And and if you've ever been, like, I so I lived in I lived in Virginia for quite a few years. I lived in Missouri for a few months. I'm oh, sorry, um, misery. I called it misery. I have 15 months of ex- existence in there, so I fi- figure I could say that. Um, we love thunderstorms. Our, our listeners in Missouri, we yes, love you though. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, but thunderstorms on the East Coast and in Missouri, there, dude, there, there's some incredible things. Um, Loud thunder. I mean, we hear thunder here in, in Washington every now and then, but it's like it's nothing compared to what I remember hearing as a kid. Lightning bolt. Like I'm, dude. It was it, so to to consider that in my experience, and then magnify it with trumpet blasts, with the shaking violently. I have this one image forever ingrained in my head, where I remember lightning had struck a, a tall pine tree, 
in, right in my neighborhood. And I remember as the rain had finished, like it was just more of like a light drizzle. The thunderstorm had passed. It was just past us. And I remember running out, all the neighborhood kids were going to the tree to look at all the bark that was all over the floor. That's cool. And I remember like starting to run over there and you hear this boom, like this massive thunder. And it's like, I was like, immediately like the, like just nope, turn right back, run right to my mom. Um, Cause it scared the living snot out of me. Uh, and so I could understand to a degree, a very small degree, kind of what's happening here, but it's such an incredibly terrifying experience to have happen. Um, and so it says that Moses, oh, God answered him in the thunder. Uh, and then the Lord came down on Mount Sinai at the top of the mountain. The Lord summoned Moses up to the top and he went up. Uh, and that's, and that's kind of where chapter 19 ends. We know chapter 20 deals with the 10 commandments to a degree, but there's more to it than that. Um, but before we get there, uh, I'm going to take a, a stop and, and, and just simply ask if you are, if you are a part of our podcast community and you have yet to leave a, a review, can you do that for us? Um, it uh, sure would be swell. It'd be, it'd be awesome. It'd be, it'd be the best thing ever. Um, and, uh, the way you can do that is go through Apple, uh, podcasts, leave a five star. You can even leave a written review. We'll read that on the podcast. Spotify as well. Spotify, you can leave a five star rating. You can't leave a written review yet. I was under the impression early on they'd let you at one point, but they haven't done that yet. So just keep leaving those five stars. Um, or if you have some updates to an old review, uh, like Grandpa Steve, who updated his review recently, uh, I will we'll shout you out and read it on a podcast like this. So Grandpa Steve says, I really like the background for the passages in the Bible you guys bring up to the point that I ordered the Old Testament survey book you mentioned often, uh, which it's a good resource. That is the essence, essence of, of the, the Old, Old Testament. Testament. James, survey. you owe me a Coke. Just oh. um, I don't know who wrote that one. I get them all confused. Ed Hinson and Gary Yates, Yates. I believe is that one. Hinson and Yates, not Gutierrez. Right. Um, he says this, though my wife and I are getting better, uh, getting a better application for the book of Job this year because of the podcast. Um, and they listened to it together. In the past, he found it to be a depressing uh, book and didn't get as much out of it. And then he also really likes our new, newly ad- added application segment of our podcast. So, um, so yeah, if you want to leave a review, uh, we would love to take time to read it on the podcast for you. Uh, but Evan, you're going to finish up the book of Exodus this week. And I think we're getting into, uh, if, you're, if you're, you know, famously, we always joke about how I'm going to read the whole Bible in a year. And then you kind of get lost in Leviticus and then you quit. Um, I feel like this is one of the first sections that's kind of like that. This is where we're getting the law. Um, and it can be a little bit a little bit boring to read, let's be realistic. But I do think there's some really interesting things to be found in this segment. So this is kind of the, the Lord speaking out of the whirlwind. Once again, chapter 20 begins, uh, and it begins with this. And, the, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. So there's our first commandment. Um, and it's basically this idea of, <laughs> I, I am the Lord your God. I am the one true God. You are not going to worship any other gods besides me. Um, the Israelites, they don't really hold up to that very well. So as we'll see through not just the rest of Exodus, we'll see this basically through all of Israelite history, they struggle with worshiping other gods. Uh, right alongside that, it says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers of, on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to th- thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So again, you're not going to worship carven images of other gods and you're not going to try and make an image of God because Yahweh Elohim is not 
he's not one of a pantheon of gods. He's not resembling the things in creation. He is the creator. After that, we, this we get, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Um, when I was a kid, this was always told to me as uh, don't swear, which is not what this is talking about. Um, there's other reasons you shouldn't swear, but it's not one of the Ten Commandments. This is specifically talking about don't make light of the name of God um, and don't claim things are God that aren't God and don't do things in the name of God that are evil. Um, our next commandment is remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. This is a huge thing that comes up a lot during the law, but also later on. Um, essentially, there is a day that is set aside where you're not supposed to work. You're supposed to worship God and, and remember that day. Always keep that day. Uh, to continue on with that, it says, six days shall you labor and do all your work but on the seventh day. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord. On it, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner within your gates. Also interesting that the livestock is included there. Although I guess livestock doesn't really work without you doing stuff. So that makes sense. Uh, for in the six days, the Lord has made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Next commandment we get is honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord God is giving you. After that, you shall not murder. After that, you shall not commit adultery. Uh, you shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your, covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything else that is your neighbor's. So those are the big 10 that we get right at the front. Uh, and then it says, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you and the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So we kind of get, that's the beginning of the law. And then after this, Moses kind of goes up the mountain and we get the rest of Basically, this whole big section of Exodus is going to be all the things that uh, God tells Moses after that. So the rest of chapter 20 is a specific command to not create any idols or altars to other gods, um, which again, we're going to read about a lot in uh, Joshua, Judges, Kings, and Chronicles. Not so much in Joshua. They do, they do pretty well during that section. But uh, a lot of Israel's history is like just kind of the wandering eyes to other gods, I suppose. So it's not like it's an unfaithful spouse. But instead of your earthly spouse, it's the omnipotent creator of the universe is who you're, you know, you're wanting to cheat on. So way to go. Way to go, Israel. Uh, chapter 21 is a list of laws with how slaves are to be treated, which is, of course, incredibly strange to our modern ears. Um, and so this is, these are parts of the Bible that are always really difficult to read because mm -hmm. we're kind of thinking in, in our modern times, especially in the modern West, we have basically eradicated slavery, which is a good thing. That is, that is a wonderful thing. Um, but it, that makes it really difficult to go back in time to works that existed when slavery was the norm and not the exception. Um, and so I, th I think it's, it's important to remember that for the vast majority of human history, like we're talking from the beginnings of humanity all the way through until the 1900s is really when that starts to switch. Uh, I shouldn't say starts to switch. It's really when the switch happens of where there's slavery is now the exception. It still exists, but it's the exception, not the rule. From those years all the way back, 
slavery was an institution across the world mm-hmm. without almost without exception. Like maybe you can find a small nation somewhere, but it, it basically is without exception. And so um, the Bible is written, especially the old covenant, but even the new covenant, it's written to those specific cultures in those specific times. And it's telling you how to live in a world where this thing um, exists. The other way, because the, the contrast I always bring to it is when you read the New Testament letters and it's talking about respecting governmental authority. Um, one of the things that we skip over is that it's talking about respecting the governmental authority of the Roman Empire, which is actively oppressing and trying to suppress the message of Christianity. Mm-hmm. You'll notice in those sections, it is not about overthrow the Roman government because what they're <laughs> doing is evil, even though it is. It's evil and sinful and wicked. What is it about? It's about how to live in a world where that is the government that you serve. And I think it's a similar thing with slavery. Slavery isn't endorsed. It's like, this is a great thing. Keep doing this. It's similar Good to like, job. Yeah, it's similar to polygamy where like it's allowed, but it's like it never turns out well. Um, and so Wait, I think- what? Yeah. It, Just kidding. I, I always say that. I, I feel like so, one day someone's going to bring up an example where like it's a really good thing. But I feel like every example of polygamy- in the Bible is always a bad thing. <laughs> and like it always causes a bunch of a bunch of problems. Um, another thing I would say too is just the laws that Israel has regarding slaves are incredible for the time and unlike any other code that we really see. So to give you an example of a few of these, um, the Israelites were not committed to keep a slave for longer than six years. On the seventh year, the slave and fam- and the family of that slave must be freed. And the only exception is unless the slave specifically requests otherwise. So if the slave is like, hey, I like it here, um, I, I would like to stay, then that, that can work out as well. Um, I guess an important thing to realize also is we kind of live in a very modern capitalistic society where like we think in terms of money. And so like my labor is worth money, right? Um, to ancient peoples, the idea of working in exchange for food and room and board is that was much that was a much more acceptable thing, I guess, is is the way that I would phrase it back then, as opposed to modern day, where that would be ridiculous if you had a job and all they gave you was a place to live and food to eat. Uh, next one would be women who sold themselves into wifehood, which is kind of an interesting way to phrase it. And again, this really strange to modern ears, uh, or were sold by their parents, must be treated with all the respect of a wife and daughter. And so this is specifically talking about families who can't afford um Families who cannot afford wedding ceremonies or mm-hmm. things like that, oftentimes what would happen is the either the, the woman herself would sell herself to a man and become a secondary wife, or the parents would do that on their own. Um, and so what this commandment is getting at is that you cannot treat them like a slave. You cannot treat them like a concubine, like they are, they are your wife, and you are to treat them with all of the respect that that ent- entails. Um, again, which in and of itself is a big deal. Yes. Because the way that the ancient history or ancient cultures viewed women was not necessarily fully respectful. Like it was, you're my property. And, and there's a layer to it where there is, but it is, it's still a big deal to, it's not, I, 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 I'm failing at how to communicate this, but I think that what it was at the time was a very big statement of affirmation of the, the value and worth of a female and a woman. Yep. And, and I think that's a big deal too. And again, like it's easy to look with our, this is 2023 modern yeah. Western world glasses and be like, this is really backwards, which it is by our standards. Um, but it's, I think it's important to, when we read the Bible all the time that we read the Bible, we need to look at it through the lens of the people who read it first. And to those people, this would have been, again, these are very progressive laws for the time. Well, and here's the deal real quick with that. The, the, the modern day individual 
doesn't know how to do that. It, we don't know how to review scripture through the eyes of the audience, the original audience. Sure. And and so this is why I think it takes a lot of work. And that's and that's I mean, dare I be all like cheesy about it? And like even listening to podcasts like this will help because we we can do some of that work, but even then we can't do all of the work. Um, we can provide glimpses and thoughts and insights, but it's as as a reader of scripture, it takes work to understand like what's actually happening. I think that's where study Bibles come in. That's where the the book resources that we've referenced come in. Um, we can only give you a very small portion of what we wrestle through and what we process through. But it is important. Like we have to do our due diligence to understand what is God saying in the context of Scripture, not from a filter of twenty twenty three. Right. And and that's a big that's a big challenge for all of us who read the Word. No, absolutely. Um, also, this chapter isn't completely rules of slaves. One thing I've, that stood out to me as really interesting is there was a distinction between first and second degree murder. So um, obviously, it's not called that, but like, so yes, it is. No, yeah. I'm just kidding. Uh, but what we describe first degree murder is like you planned to murder someone and then you killed them. Second degree murder is basically there was no plan; it wasn't premeditated, but in a moment of anger, you killed someone. Um, and so, first degree murder, and under the laws of ancient Israel here. First degree murderers are to be put to death. Uh, second, degree, second degree murderers, and I guess you could bring that down to like third degree and manslaughter as well. Um, they're sanctuary cities where they're permitted to flee in that moment. So kind of interesting in that. Kind of interesting, I thought, there that there's a distinction that old between different types of murder there. Uh, the next section gives us some laws of restitution. So basically the highlight of this is if you cause – Loss of wealth, whether that be crops, livestock, um, anything like that, you must pay to restore that person. So <clears throat> good deal there. Uh, and then also if you steal from someone, you have to pay back five times the value of what you stole. So if you – Yeah. If you, if Don't it's, steal. If it's an accident, hey, make it right. Restore them whatever you caused to loss, whatever you caused them to lose. If you steal it, that's a way more punitive there. And then this one I just thought was interesting. If you're watching over your neighbor's livestock and it dies because of you, you also have to make restitution. Yep. So if your neighbor's like, hey, can you watch my goats while I'm gone? And you're like, yeah. And then you neglect the goats and they die. That's your fault. And you need to restore them to your neighbor. So there you go. But if there's evidence that it wasn't your fault, then it's cool. So I just thought that was kind of <laughs> like basically there's Oops. a part about if it's torn apart by wild beasts, if, as long as you have evidence that that happened, then, you know, that's not your fault, bro. Sorry. So, uh, and 23, we get into some interesting social justice laws. Um, this one, I, again, you have to look at these through the lens of that time. But if a man takes a woman's virginity, he must immediately pay her dowry and make her his wife. Um, and so the thought here is you cannot, as a, as a man, you cannot just use a woman for that and then leave her out high and dry. Like you, nope, like she's your wife now. You have to absolutely uh, pay the dowry price that's happened. Um, the exception is basically if they don't want to. So if... Um, the, the woman or her father just straight up refused, like, no, this guy's a scumbag. We want no part of this. The guy still has to pay the bride price, bride price, but he's not, he's, he's basically is no longer un, under an obligation to marry her in that moment. So, but again, it's again, by, by our modern ears, that sounds very strange for the time that is a protection against the predations of, of men, uh, protection for women against the predations of men, which is great. Uh, after that, we get an interesting section about how those who engage in sorcery, bestiality, or sacrifices to any god other than Yahweh are to be immediately put to death. Uh, and this one I love is sojourners who travel in Israel are not to be harmed. And it specifically says, because you must remember that you were once sojourners in Egypt. Um, and so I, I think that's beautiful where it's saying, hey, 
you spent 400 years as strangers in a land, and at least at the beginning, they welcomed you in, like remember back to Joseph and things like that. Therefore, when foreigners sojourn in your land, you are to treat them with respect. So it kind of, I love, I don't, I just think that's a really cool uh, thing that God does there. Uh, we continue the chapter with there's some specific, there's some laws on the specifics of festivals. So basically how those are to be celebrated. Um, after this, we take a tonal shift beginning with a small section where God reminds his people that he will be with them for the conquest of Canaan. So this whole thing, remember he has the promised land, it's going to go. And he says like, I'm going to be with you during this whole thing. Uh, but as we saw, when, even when God says, hey, I'm going to be with you at the Red Sea, the people kind of panic <laughs> when he says, hey, I'm going to be with you uh, into the land of Canaan. The people also freak out. But that's not this week. We'll get to that. We'll get to that later. Uh, in chapter 24, Yahweh instructs Moses to renew the covenant with Israel. So basically, it's a reminder of this is the covenant that I've made with you. And then in chapter 25, this kicks off a long section. This is 25 through 31, and it's all instructions on the tabernacle and the sanctuary. So these include, but are not limited to, <laughs> uh, raising money to build the sanctuary. So basically, how are we going to get enough money to build the tabernacle and the sanctuary? Uh, the construction of the Ark of the Covenant, which is uh, of Indiana Jones fame, uh, but also of fame. We're going to see that come up a lot, particularly in Judges um, and early Kings. The Ark of the Covenant is a big deal, and essentially it is... Um, a really ornate golden box that is forbidden to be touched that also comes up, um, but it's carried with poles and the inside of it are the tablets with which God will, uh, which God gives to Moses. And there's a couple other things too that I should have written down, but I don't remember there. Uh, after that, we get building the table for the bread of the presence, which is also going to be a big deal in the temple. Uh, well, sorry, the tabernacle first, then the temple. After that, we get the golden lampstand. Think Hanukkah. That's the, that's the same thing there where it's in the temple and it lights. Uh, not the same one, I should be clear, but you know, same idea. Uh, also, I didn't realize it's hammered out of one piece of gold, mm -hmm. which is like, that's that's pretty hard to do. <laughs> like that's, yeah. that's, they, made an, they made a menorah out of one piece of gold. So good good on whoever's well, doing it. Well, it shows the skill, right? I mean, yeah. that's, and even, even God says like, I have, I have set apart an individual to do the work. Two individuals. Yes. But yep. but it gives them a specific skill, like empowers them to do uh, and, and craft these things, which mm -hmm. is pretty remarkable too. Uh, after that, we get the construction of the tabernacle itself, the altar of bronze, uh, the court around the tabernacle, and then we switch over to the garments that the priests are going to wear. So it's very specifically laid out for this is the uniform of the priest. Uh, after that, we get what is the process of consecra consecrating Levites to the priesthood? Uh, this is an important distinction that we get where not all Levites are priests, but all priests are Levites. So um, some of the Levites, their job, again, that their inheritance is not the land. So their job is still in support of the temple and the priesthood and things like that. But um, there is even a specific higher thing where when, when a Levite enters into the priesthood, this is what's going to happen. After that, we get a section on building the altar of incense, uh, and then we get new taxes. So we started off yeah, with yeah. Some, some taxes. We get some new taxes in because this is, in case you couldn't tell from reading it, this is an expensive building that is being erected right now. Uh, after that, we get the bronze basin that is used for purifying the priests, which is an important deal. And then the final part of this section is the anointing oil and the incense that is going to be used during ceremonies. Um, the big takeaway from all of this is that the worship of Yahweh is not something to be done halfway. Mm -hmm. And he kind of, kind of reminds me of Cain and Abel a little bit where um, it's bringing your best. And what is the, all of these descriptions of the tabernacle? This is the best. You're, it's going to be gold. 
It is going to be honoring to God. It's not going to be pieces of gold that you melt together. It's going to be one solid piece and for all these different things. Like mm-hmm. it, it is essentially saying that we are glorifying God and worshiping him. And we're showing that in, in this instance, we're showing it by the respect with which we build. And if you're, I shouldn't say remember, because we're going to, we haven't talked about Solomon yet. Um, but one of the digs at Solomon is that he builds the temple and the temple's amazing and it's glorious, but his palace is even better. And so you can even see in his heart there, he's he's glorifying his own reign over the reign of God. So kind of interesting. Uh, in chapter 31, after God has given all these deets on construction, he tells Moses that he has raised up uh, Bezalel of the tribe of Judah. And this is, he's the son of Hur, which is what I thought was interesting. Uh, and then oh. Oh my gosh. Oh, of Dan. So those are the two, uh, the two, I shouldn't say carpenters, I guess they're metal workers, but they're the ones who God's like, Hey, by the way, these guys are going to be great. They're going to do a good job. Put that forward. So good deal there. Uh, and then chapter 31 ends with Yahweh telling Moses that the Sabbath, that keeping the Sabbath is of the utmost importance, which is interesting because I think of the 10 commandments, that's the one that in modern days we kind of have the most fudge on where we're like, oh yeah. And then the Sabbath, you know, just, you know, take a break once in a while. Uh, but it's clear in this moment that God is saying like, no, like there is a day that you need to set aside where you're not working and you're reflecting on me. So kind of a, uh, an interesting thought for us today. Chapter 32 gets us back into some narrative. Uh, so Moses has gotten all of this law downloaded. This, this is all taking place. Sinai, like this is all, like, this is a, a bunch of stuff. Well, it's a 40 day. And, and this is why I said at the end of my, like the section earlier, like this is an 80 day journey. There's a reason it was 80 days, but it's a, like, this is 40 days. Moses is gone for 40 days as God's processing through all of these things with him and downloading all this information. So it's, mm-hmm. we read through it in a few days. But this is a 40-day conversation that Moses is having with God. So let's, um, you know, obviously, as we know, Aaron, the people of, uh, the people of Israel, they just chilled. and They're they patient. Yep. They waited for God. They, they can't waited wait for, Moses for God's to be done. provision. And... Let's see what they were up to while Moses Sorry. was up there. <laughs> so this is in chapter 32, starting in verse 1. Uh, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountains, the people gathered themselves together and Aaron said to uh, – gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him – up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So basically like, hey, we need some new gods. Obviously this old God, you know, that one who just did all of the miracles and delivered us, he's obviously gone. It's been over a month, Aaron. It's it's over. It's over. It's done. Uh, So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears, uh, in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all of the people took the rings of gold that were in their ears and they brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Okay. Wow. Like that is just like, what a... I'm embarrassed to have his name. Yeah. Well, and also it's just like... I don't know. It's just crazy to me that they were just like, yeah, you know, these are our gods now. This 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 made up cow. Like at least at least take an Egyptian god or something. Not that that would have been any better, but I feel like this is just you're just making things up now. Yeah. Uh, when well, there's Aaron, a couple of things here that I think are are kind of comical to me as well. Like we don't have any record of Aaron saying, "Wait a minute, we should wait for Moses." Well, we should we should go and see if he's true. At this point, like we also don't have like the the cloud is still covering Mount Sinai. I didn't think about like until like the cloud is not it hasn't departed. left. Yeah, so it's not like they're like, oh, God left, and there's no like it's it's still there, people. 
And and the other side of it too, like I was even reading, I think um, a couple of days ago, just this tension of like their flippancy to cast Moses out. We don't know this Moses, like this guy. We don't know what happened to him. We right. need some, we need someone. And and I and I do think, and I'm, I'm, this is part of the tension I wrestle too. I think you also see the the culture clashing. They lived in Egypt. They were influenced by that culture. They had multiple gods for multiple things. Right. Pharaoh was divine. Uh, and 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 even God establishes Moses and Aaron to be in that same that same vein of authority to combat Pharaoh and his magicians and prophets. You've got Moses who is the uh, who is like God to, in Pharaoh's eyes. So you see these cultural things play out to, as well, which is a big deal. Um, but still, like how quickly they were to reject the fact that Moses is no longer here. Forty days. I'm gonna be. It's a long time to wait for someone to show back up. I get it, but. The cloud is still there. Like, these are just the things I'm like, what on earth? And Aaron, you bonehead. What were you thinking? Um, to just be able to say, like, now, just because we don't have him hesitating doesn't mean he didn't hesitate. So I want to be clear about that. Uh, but there is something interesting to be to be to just be seen through this tension of, yeah, Moses, we don't know what happened to him. It was an insult to Moses. And it was also an insult to God because God established Moses as the leader of his people. Um, and so I think there's a lot of flippancy, of, of arrogance, and you saw it all the way. Like, should we be surprised by this? No, because they were grumbling almost from day one, uh, probably more like day three. But they were grumbling from the very beginning, even up to this point. Too. Right. Well, think about, okay, think about how crazy verse five is. Because it says, then Aaron saw this and he built an altar before it, which, okay, not great. <laughs> Uh, and then Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord or tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. So this is not like, like, again, like you're, you're talking about, like they just have, they have the polytheism that they've been in for so long, just so ingrained into them. That doesn't even like, it, it doesn't occur to them that like, Hey, this is really disrespectful mm-hmm. to, to God. Yeah. They <laughs> use the word Elohim oh, in God. referring to, we need an Elohim right. to lead us forward because we don't have know what happened to this Elohim. Like that, that's the, that's the word that they're using. That was so mind blowing to me mm-hmm. when I read through the, like the, the Israelites say, Hey, we need a new Elohim, like that we can just manufacture them. And and so I think it's, it's, again, it's part of the cultural clash. It's part of the challenge of God establishing it, his own people for himself and r- removing from them, killing off in them, the old Egyptian ways, which not to elude or pun- lead to anything, but there's this tension happening where it's the old versus the new and God's establishing a new uh, a new covenant, new people, a new plan, and you see the old prevailing in some respects. Yeah. Well, continuing on in verse six, it says, and they rose up early the next day and they offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Then the Lord said to Moses- Did they play tag? Yeah, probably. <laughs> then the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. I always- Your people. I always joke that- um, <laughs> There's a old like cassette tapes I used to have called Mr. Henry, and it was the best. Uh, but when he did this Bible story, like he did, like oh, so now they're my people. <laughs> like yep. wait, wait, wait a second here. Um, they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, "These are your gods, O Israel, who have brought you out of the land of Egypt." And the Lord said to Moses, "I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you." Um, so God is super angry, we, which we got a question. We're not going to answer it till next week, but we got 
a really interesting question about like the anger of God in these moments. Like yeah. if God knows everything. And that question came from Instagram. So oh, it did come. Yeah. So anyway, but we'll get to that next week, not this week. Uh, but Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent, did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it for, forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoke of bringing on his people. So, oh, that's, that's scary. That's, it reminds me, I need to look up why sometimes it's Israel and you sometimes it's Jacob. Oh, shortly right. after this, God uses the word Jacob, not Israel. That's true. In response. Anyways. It's, it's one just, of the it's few, to me. it's one of the few name changes in scripture that's not permanent. It doesn't like stick, it goes yeah. back and forth. So anyways, but yeah, so God is insanely angry, rightfully about all of this. Um, and so, but he's going to, he's going to relent from disaster as we'll see. He's not like, he's not done being mad, but he's like, okay, fine. You're, I'm not going to kill you at least. Well, I'm not going to kill most of you at least. What? Uh, and so Moses though is also, That's next week. yeah, he's pretty, he's pretty peeved about this as well. Um, he breaks the tablets that, sorry, he goes down the mountain and he breaks the tablets that God had carved up at the base of the mountain. Uh, and then in an absolutely savage, I put in a good way, um, but also in the, uh, in the, actual definition of the term, uh, he takes the calf and he grounds up all of the gold and he makes the people drink it. Those on top of the drinking water says drink. Love it. Moses, great move there. Uh, And then finally he orders about 3000 men put to death. Um, We're not- He draws a line says, if you are for, if you are with me for God, join me. And he says, now go kill your brother, your neighbor, and someone else. I forget. Yeah. Well, specifically the Levites are the ones who do this. We're not told how they- choose. I would imagine it's the kind of the ringleaders of the, uh, we need new gods or we need new Elohims, but we're not told that. Like it, yeah. like it could theoretically just be go randomly kill 3000 people. That seems like that's not what's happening there. But again, we're not, we're not told. Yeah, I mean, it's happening. funny. I read it. I, I read it this morning in review or whatever. And it was like this picture of like, I almost like read it like he literally killed his brother, a brother, <laughs> killed a neighbor. Uh, and then whatever, I forget the third category, but there's yeah. like three, three people to kill. Uh, it's almost like that's just what they did. Mm-hmm. Um, so Yahweh then commands Moses to take the people away from Mount Sinai and toward Canaan. Uh, however, he specifically says that he will not be with the people on this journey. So again, he's pretty upset about the whole worshiping fal- false gods things from from earlier. Yep. So not great. Uh, which is, which is incredibly gracious of him to, okay, I'm still going to give you land. I promised you. I'm just not with you. Yeah. He hasn't revoked that yet. Like, so on one hand, like he's still fulfilling his covenant agreement. I'm going to lead I'm going to give you the land of flowing of milk and honey. Uh, but I mean, that's a pretty significant thing too. So it's, anyway. it's, and this is a very flippant way of saying it, but it's almost like God in this moment was like, I just need some space right now. Yeah. You guys go, you leave. I'll get out of here. I'll catch up. Uh, We then get a really interesting aside where we are told that Yahweh would still meet with Moses in his own tent and the people would observe this this, and they would worship uh, from the doors of their tent. So what Moses would do is he would take his tent to the outskirts of the camp and then the pillar of smoke would still come and like Yahweh and Moses would still be able to have conversations and the people would not, they would not get close. They would observe this, it says, from the doors of their own tents, Mm -hmm. but they're clearly seeing that Yahweh has not abandoned them. So... 
that's a good thing. Uh, and then Moses makes an interesting request during one of these meetings. So this is in Exodus chapter 33, starting in verse 17. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, which will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for a man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So, I mean, really cool moment there where, I mean, Moses is asking, like, I want to see the full glory of who you are. And, and God's reply is like, well, you can't handle that, but I'll, I'll, I'll let you, I'll, I'll show you a little bit. Um, and so Moses goes back to Sinai and, uh, after this, God commands Moses to make two new tablets. And so those are the tablets that are kept in the ark. It's not the original ones that were broken. Uh, and then God once again writes on the tablets himself and the law is given to the people. And importantly, the covenant is renewed. Um, and speaking of reading the Bible through the lens of those people, imagine how powerful that moment is after you messed up as horribly as you messed up with the golden calf that God renews his covenant with Israel. Yeah. So he, he really does give them just chance after chance after chance. And usually- And continues to do so. Yeah, that's forward. true for us today. Uh, anyway, so uh, this time when Moses returns from Sinai, his face is glowing and the people are afraid to go near him because he has seen the glory of God. Not in full, but at least in part. And that's where we wrap up this week. That's, that's the last. That's the last thing that we're gonna, uh, that we're going to read. That's ne- kind of a fun place to end. Yeah, no, it's. A, I think it's great. Uh, next week we're going to wrap up Exodus, and we are going to uh, begin Leviticus, which is always yes. a good deal. Uh, but we're not done for this week's episode. First, we want to talk about what we learned today. Yeah. So if I'm going to take a moment and reflect back all the way back to chapter 14, uh, I kind of read the, the verse 31, which I thought was powerful. Uh, and I'll read it again and then and then offer a very simple, profound thought, I thought, I think. Um, but says this, when Israel saw, this was right after the the parting of the Red Sea and coming and crashing back down to the Egyptians. Uh, when Israel saw the great power the Lord used against the Egyptians and the people feared the Lord and believed in him and his servant Moses. Um, now contrast that against up into Mount Sinai and that whole golden calf thing, whatever. Um, but the the difference between Pharaoh and God's people is how they responded to his power. And and this is, this is, I remember highlighting this in my study notes in my Bible, so I can't even take credit for this one. But Pharaoh did not observe what God did and respond in fear and recognition. Uh, I guess fear and belief would be a better way to say it. Um, and so, as I as I as we read through the Old Testament accounts, as we're like, as as we are shifting to modern day conversation, right? Um, for you and for me, like the I mean, Proverbs talks about the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Um, so as I read that verse, and they saw the, the the powerful things, they feared God and believed in Him and His servant Moses. Um, if the fear of the Lord, trusting in who God is, that He He, he is the, the the mighty acts that He displays. Um, we may not see the Red Sea parted today. We may see a version of it in a movie where Jim Carrey's parting the red tomato soup, right? Um, but we may not see something as significant as that. But the reality is even even Romans reminds us that all around us, all throughout creation, 
I mean, I'm I'm reading a book right now about the the the, the moon landing, and just the just the incredible reality of of all that God created and the ingenuity and brilliance of human minds. Like there's so much that we have if we would stop and really consider the reality of the world we live in. Like, do we recognize the the might and the power of God on a daily basis? Um, because if we do, our response needs to be if we want to walk in the favor and the provision and the and and the will of like the 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 hope of God, it hinges on our ability and to see these acts, to be aware of them. And then to respond, not fear like I'm afraid of you, although there's moments of that because God is sovereign and he can do whatever the heck he wants. He can give life and take life in a matter of an instant. But the reality is much bigger than that where his power is so extravagant, it should evoke a response of humility and worship and awe. And and that was the difference between God's people and Pharaoh. Pharaoh died in the Red Sea. God's people walked through the Red Sea. And in light of that, they were able to see God's deliverance, provision, and power. So I thought that was a really a really significant thing, um, that the difference between Pharaoh and God's people was how they responded to his power. So. No, that's really great. Uh, mine is, I guess, you, you kind of hinted at it a little bit towards the end there, um, but it's God's willingness to continually forgive the Israelites and by extension us today. Oh, yeah. um, and I think that's a very easy way. There's a very easy application here where um, even in the moment of like, just imagine the audacity of miracle after miracle after miracle. And a month later, you're like, yeah, we need new gods. This old God isn't, isn't really cutting it for us anymore. Um, in that moment, I totally get, <laughs> I, t- I totally get God's instinct, probably the wrong word, but the idea of like, you know what, I'm just going to kill all these people and we'll just, we'll just start over with a brand new people. It'll be awesome. I, I, that's understandable to me. Um, but I love that God gives them mercy and we're going to see all throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, and then obviously it culminates in in Christ in the New Testament, um, that even in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our brokenness, God continuously forgives us. Um, And it's something for us today to remember that when we sin, when we fall short, we don't need to run away. We don't need to find other gods, um, but that God is there and he's waiting. So really cool. Love that section. Uh, Before we wrap up today, though, we did have a question come in. This one says, hello, let's read the Bible scholars. No, it says, hello, LRTB scholars. Abbreviated, yeah. Gosh. That's fair. Stop Uh, lying to our people. Also, scholars is a bit of a stretch, but uh, (laughs) a pair of very open questions from, uh, open-handed questions from my son, which I can't answer. Number one, why did God create Satan? And number two, why did God create hell? Or did Satan do it? Um, Help. I have no idea how to even start answering. It bothers me that God, who is perfect, created uh, intentionally imperfect beings to screw things up and to provide uh, and to prove how much he loves us by saving uh, some of us who choose to accept him by being saved. And further, he creates angels whose sole purpose was to worship him. And one or rather several somehow broke their programming and chose not to. I didn't think angels were given that level of free will, will, so it's a bit weird. Okay. So this, I mean, like, so first off, it's important to say almost all of this is very open-handed. <laughs> like it's not no, like it's close-fisted. the Bible doesn't specifically kidding. address these questions. So you're kind of having to take principles um, and a little bit of conjecture. So uh, we'll just go from, so just to kind of go point by point and then Aaron, you know, feel free to interject with yeah. any thoughts you have here. Um, we can't know why God chose to create Satan, but probably the same reason that he allows evil in general. Um, and so this is what I would say is, um, 
my my wife has the capacity um to not love me. Like it is it is very possible that one day Ashley's just like, you know what? I'm done. You know what I mean? Obviously, you don't want to think about that and I don't anticipate that happening, but that is with that is a uh that is a possibility of something that can happen. I could build a robot that looks I, I guess I shouldn't say I could. I wouldn't know how to do this. But theoretically, let's say that I could build a robot that looks exactly like Ashley and has her same personality, but I can program it to always love me and they could she can never choose this robot cannot choose anything else. Well, it's not love. That's just a robot. And so I think uh, the reason that God allows evil is because if God does not allow evil, then he cannot allow love. We cannot worship, we cannot truly worship God. We cannot truly love God unless we have the capacity to choose other things. So that's kind of how I would answer that. Um, and then if, if, if God only create, if God, even if God created people with the ability to um, commit evil, but then he only created people that he knew would never choose it, it's basically the same thing. Mm -hmm. And so God does have to give us free will there. Um, the second point I would say, for sure, God created hell. So I think that's one of those things where a lot of times, uh, um, I think Tom and Jerry and like play, things like that kind of twist our mind. But even there, I think even like the medieval conception of hell is where is really where a lot of that starts. Um Hell is never spoken of as a, the, as the dominion of Satan. Satan does not rule there. Um, God rules over all of creation, and that includes hell. Mm -hmm. um, and and God creates hell. Satan was like Satan wasn't just like you know what I'm going to make my own kingdom and it's going to be awesome and there's going to be lava everywhere and we're all going to have tails. <laughs> um, like that's not you know what I mean. Like I said, these are kind of like inventions of the medieval and then like later modern imagination. Um, no, God created hell specifically as a place uh, for punishment. And and God rules over hell. When if uh, people do not go to hell and find Satan in charge, and he's like finding, you know, like we kind of think of it as like Satan's in charge down there, and he's finding ways to torture people. That's not the case. Satan is also one of the people uh, being punished. So I think that part's important there. Um, like we said, uh, I, and I, the last thing would be. We're, we're not specifically told very much about the angels and that's on purpose because the Bible is not a book about angels. It's a book about God. It's a book about God's relationship with, with man, God's relationship with humans. Um, but I think clearly angels have free will. And so, and because Satan and the demons, they exercise their free will. They're not created evil from what we can tell. Um, they, they exercise their free will to reject God. Um, so while there are other differences they can clearly choose to sin and they have some measure of free will. Um, now, the question would be, I, it, it seems like, and again, this is very open-handed because we're not told a ton about the about spiritual beings. It seems like they do not have the same oppor opportunity for redemption that humans have. And so, for we, like Christ died for us so that in the midst of our sin, we can be saved. It, From what we know, it doesn't seem like God has made a way um, for that to happen with angels. Now we don't know that for sure. Maybe mm -hmm. there is, but because, because again, the, the Bible is not concerned with that. Um, so it's, it seems like they can exercise their free will to commit evil and to abandon God. Um, but the way, the way that they are redeemed is different or possible versus impossible, depending on kind of what you believe there. Um, but that doesn't mean that they're, you know, that they're robots. Um, and also I would say angels have a much higher access to the full glory of God in, in, mo in moments as well. Um, and so maybe that's part of it where there isn't 
there isn't the veil of the world, I guess, between uh, angels and God the way there is between us. So maybe because of that, there's less grace for when they fall away as well. But and again, like I said, all of this is very open-handed conjecture. Um, the the big thing would be, I, I think it is that principle of if God does not allow for a world where evil exists, then he's also not really allowing for a world where good exists because you, we, you can't really have one um, without the other. Specifically, if we, if we describe God as he is good and that is what he chooses, um, there has to be some sort of concept of, of non-good, of evil. And so, I don't know, really heady. I don't know if you have anything yeah. you want to add in there, but... No, I mean, I think they're they're really good questions. I think the second question is the easiest to answer, um, that God is the one who created hell and he created it for the purpose of Satan and his followers. Um, why did he choose to create Satan? Um, I, 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 yeah, I, I kind of lie in the same vein of thought with um, there's freedom and in, in God's created creation. There's freedom to, to choose and not just be robotic, which I think is important. Um, and it's it's an but there is also the allowance of evil. So I, I think you answer them really well. Uh, probably smarter than I could answer them because mine are probably more feeling based. But uh, really good questions. And I, I mean, I love that your your kid is asking these questions too. I think that's a a huge deal. Um, and and you may not always have the answers, and I think that's okay too. But uh, yeah, great questions, great questions. All right. Well, that does wrap it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. Um, As a reminder, we are a podcast of The Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of The Grove Church. You can find all of our other resources on our website, grove.church, under the media tab. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you'd like to financially contribute to the ministry that The Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website. There's a give button in the upper right-hand corner. But hey, thank you all so much for listening. Have a great week.